In late 2002, Reed Hoffman and some of his old colleagues from PayPal and SocialNet.com founded an online social community called LinkedIn. After a few investments by venture capital firms, and less than four years, LinkedIn reached 20 million members. Steady growth led them to an IPO in early 2011, just after they hit 100 million users. And on June 13th, 2016, which was last Monday, Microsoft announced its intention to buy LinkedIn for over $26 billion. Today is June 20th, 2016, and you're listening to Episode 7, Windows Server 2016, on InfoTrek. Hey everybody, welcome back to InfoTrek. I'm here with uh, the usuals, Derek and Mike, and we have a guest, a uh, representative from Microsoft named Juan Cruz. Juan, can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you? Yeah, hey everyone. My name is Juan. I work with Microsoft. I am a partner technology strategist. I work with uh, partners uh, all across the Microsoft ecosystem to help them build their uh, Microsoft business, specifically around uh, Azure, so helping them uh, get their, their business ready to deliver our cloud products to our uh, customers around the world. Very cool. So uh, we're going to go through some of the news items from today. It's been a while. There's actually been some uh, some big news items we're not, we're not covering because they're kind of old news now, like this, the whole... Cisco resignation thing, I think, happened. That was like a couple weeks ago, right, guys? Yeah, just about. Yeah. Anyway, first thing up here, um, I don't know how much, one you can comment about it, but uh, I think the big thing in the news this week or this last week is the acquisition of LinkedIn by Microsoft. Uh, purchased for, by memory, I think it was around $26 billion, um, pure cash. From what I read, it looks like Microsoft ha- just has it in the bank ready to use. It seems like it's a, really their first step into any kind of social media um, or, or, or any kind of social network at all. Uh, Derek, what do you think? Uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting, right? I've been kind of following this one and seeing it when it when it went you know public and posted, and you know, been reading some of the emails that LinkedIn has been posting, and you know, kind of some of the thoughts around it is you know, if you think about LinkedIn being kind of like the world's most professional kind of social media platform for the business side, and Microsoft. You know, obviously with, with where they're going, combining the kind of two to understand, you know, really communication in the professional space. Um, I think there's some cool, you know, information and analytics, um, understanding kind of like what jobs are coming down, how the industry is changing. Um, it could be interesting insight for Microsoft to kind of better prepare themselves for, you know, rapid change and things like that. What do you think, Mike? Yeah, so I think it's interesting that they bought them. I mean, obviously, there's clear implications, I think, for a couple of things that they highlighted kind of in some of the releases and videos that are out there around, you know, integration with productivity applications like Office 365. But the the thing that's kind of weird to me is that there hasn't been, you know, notably a big push, and maybe I'm just missing it from Microsoft or, you know, sort of any announcements from Microsoft around analytics or really wanting to integrate analytics into their products, um, you know, where we would see LinkedIn really being a source for that data, right? So if I'm going to be in the office and then suddenly it's going to start correlating my contacts with emails that I get from people on LinkedIn or, you know, somehow give me intelligence around my customers uh, that they're hiring or doing other things because they've got X number of job postings from LinkedIn, maybe in dynamic CRM, uh, you know, that's really where I could see it, but I don't, I don't know what, where their, where their capabilities lie as far as analytics platforms and, um, you know, and really making use of that data at this point. So I, I think it's, I think it's, it's got a, a promise around it. 
Um, it will just kind of be, you know, wait and see to, to see what they do with the data. The other thing, though, for me is that I think some of that could be a little bit invasive. Like if I'm using Office 365 because it's, you know, the right productivity platform for me, and now all of a sudden I'm sort of bombarded with all this ancillary information about contacts and other things in LinkedIn that I don't necessarily care about or want to see, I could see it maybe even alienating some customers. But, you know, just just my two cents on that. Yeah, it seemed like from what I could tell from what I read, they're going to keep the brands completely separate and keep it as a separate business. Um, that doesn't mean they're not going to share information on the back end. I'm sure they're going to take advantage of that if it makes sense to, but it didn't seem like they're going to try and in- completely integrate LinkedIn into Microsoft and make it, you know, the Microsoft social media platform, um, you know, yeah, guess, with their own the, brand on it or something. The argument against that though, is if you look at the stock trend, um, for LinkedIn and they touched on it, even with the, you know, the video that they did with Microsoft CEO and, um, LinkedIn CEO, the, the stock trend since their last earnings announcement has been rapidly declining until yeah. this purchase, right? So I don't think that there would, there would be a whole lot of value in Microsoft leaving buying it. a company and leaving yeah. it alone, right? So yeah, that's for the true. stock to decline. So, I mean, just some of the comments that were sort of generally made that were vague in some of those videos around, you know, just integration with the cloud product and, you know, in Office 365 specifically being mentioned a couple of times. Um, I think that there there has to be something larger at play there for them to spend that kind of money on it. Yeah. Yep. Juan, I don't know how much uh, how much you can say, but what do you think? So, I mean, just from my own personal opinion, there's there's a lot of I, there's a lot of potential value there um, just within the data itself. If you think about uh, a good chunk of the users in LinkedIn, they're Microsoft's prime demographic. You know, we're talking about professionals in the industry that Microsoft caters to. So there's a lot of data there that could be leveraged uh, by Microsoft and Microsoft or to, um, I don't know, you know, walk into a meeting. Uh, you're, you're meeting with uh, a company that, you know, you want to you know, help them understand, you know, kind of where they want to go in, in the future in terms of technology. Uh, if you know a little bit more about the background of your audience, you know, you're probably better able to. Uh, you know, reach that audience in a more meaningful way. So that's one possibility. Um, there's also, you know, the the Linda integration, right? The the training um, uh, platform that LinkedIn purchased. So there's a lot of potential there for uh, Microsoft to make maybe build a better training platform for you know for their users, for the customers, uh, you know, the everyday consumer. So that's another possibility. I honestly don't know that much, um, but just from my own personal opinion on the matter. Cool. Next up on news here is uh, Google Fiber getting into uh, wireless point-to-point business. Instead of <clears throat> instead of digging holes in the ground and putting fiber in it, running fiber into your home or into your business, uh, it looks like they're setting up radio towers and, and doing point-to-point links for uh, internet services in, I think, uh, I can't remember which uh, city they started this in, but I believe it was Kansas City. But... Um, from the information in the article, it looked like they could get about a gig of throughput on these different point-to-point services, which is which is about, from what I've read, what you can get out of uh, 5G. So it seemed kind of strange that they're get, trying to get into this business when 5G is right around the corner and supposedly will give you the same service everywhere without a point-to-point link kind of thing. I don't know, Mike. What uh, what do you think? You gonna you uh, want to put a big radio on top of your house and connect directly to Google? 
No, I mean, I don't. I don't want to put a satellite dish on top of my house to get TV either, but I seem to be the, <laughs> you know, the minority in that camp. So, uh, you know, I don't know, not living in a place where there is Google Fiber today, I can't really say what, you know, what to expect because, uh, you know, the speed of delivery when you order and other things that may be really attractive for somebody who's sitting waiting for a delivery of fiber to their house, um, you know, w- when you look at wireless as an alternative maybe really great but to me i don't have either today so i i don't really know that it makes a difference i think it's kind of crazy that they're sh- kind of shifting the delivery medium at this point being that it's you know f- so old i mean not so old but they're five to six years into this at this point it's like it's named yeah. google fiber it sort of seems like well the thing that we built this business around is sort of not the direction that we're going to go going forward so yeah i wonder uh, if it's just kind of some kind of experiment or something i, I don't know um, it, it didn't really say in the article, but it does seem kind of strange, like you said. Yeah, and it said in the article, too, that they were like, you know, there was they were referencing the Facebook endeavor to provide satellite internet to r- rural parts of Africa. And like this, they made it seem almost like it's a race to get everybody connected. But like mm-hmm. in, in the case of Google Fiber, all those people are already connected today. It's just yeah. they're getting a better service like Google Fi or whatever. Same, same sort of paradigm. Yeah. My... Uh, uh, Juan, what do you think? Are you ready for uh, Google Fiberless? So I don't have Google Fiber today, so I'm still kind of grumpy about that. But I mean, it it makes sense. I mean, you got to think about the places where, um, I mean, my my last apartment, I couldn't. I, the best I could get was shoddy VDSL. It hardly worked because the infrastructure that was in that complex couldn't support faster internet. So this might be a way for you know the the everyday person to get a little bit faster internet speed so they can. Uh, you know, do all their uh, social media or their streaming. All you know, Twitch is a big thing now, so people want to put themselves on the internet, and they can't because they're limited by their bandwidth. So, I mean, this might be a way for for that to happen. It seems like Microsoft or LinkedIn Fiber would be coming if it was really that that huge of a market <laughs> opportunity. <laughs> you never know. You never know. <laughs> Derek, what about you? Yeah, that's um, in my opinion, they're actually taking a step backwards, right? So, you know, if you think yeah. about this, I've been working with some ISPs, I don't know, 10 plus years ago that were doing this, right? You know, high range, high speed, kind of point to point links. Um, I think they're kind of realizing that the last mile is not a great place to play in, right? You know, because you still have to play with the AT&Ts and the Verizons and, you know, trenching is expensive, right? I mean, it's super costly, it's time consuming, and, you know, it's really only scalable, I would say, in like newer neighborhoods, um, residential type places. But, you know, I would say most of America, it's very difficult to go back and retrofit. So they're kind of finding themselves in this position where it's like, well, we want to deploy it. Why this is kind of the only way to do it, let's go ahead and do that. And I think if you read the article, they're using like, I think somewhere in the 3G or 3.5 gigahertz spectrum. So mm-hmm. you know, the yeah. problem they're going to have with this is really the FCC limits, you know, the number of channels and the spectrum. And, you know, they're actually kind of sharing, I think, or not sharing, but they want to, they want the FCC to lax some of the rules and actually share some of the spectrum what the military uses, but I doubt the military is going to give up any spectrum for civilian use. So, um, you know, there's there's also a lot of other companies that do satellite-based communications very well, right? You know, uh, there's companies that we work with that do it, you know, for airplanes and yachts and everything else. So it, it's, I think they're going to have to kind of uh, work through it, and they might be a little bit behind the curveball if they have to stick with uh, deploying Google Wi-Fi or whatever they're going to call it, 
air fiber. Yeah, it does seem it does seem kind of non-innovative. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't even you know that it, it's it's been around for it's a long school. time. This Very is nothing school. new. Yeah, yeah. Next up here, um, this is uh, <clears throat> an announcement from Chef, who does uh, automation has uh, sells an automation platform for. Uh, uh, mostly for Linux-based servers and um, and systems infrastructure, announced a new product called Habitat. From the vague announcement and what 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 I could tell, it looked like some kind of runtime wrapper or um, just some kind of application environment that you can put around uh, some custom build application that you have to give it the ability to run anywhere you want. Mike, I, I hope you you know. I'm hoping you understood this better than I did. It seemed kind of vague, but you're our uh, you're our native developer. Does this does this sound useful to you? Yeah, I think it could be. I mean, I, I, the way that I read it was kind of that it, it puts metadata or information around the entirety of an application that's distributed across multiple nodes or, or multiple you know service delivery platforms um, into one place, so that Chef or another automation platform that's used for provisioning can can act on that information to ready a platform or multiple platforms to have that application running within it. Specifically, they mentioned the use in container environments and, uh, and also platform as a service environments. So, you know, if you take a look at a distributed application today that may have, you know, three to four tiers of, of services or, or things that it requires to really function, if I want to move all of those things from one place to another, there's there's not really anything that sort of tells me what the blueprint of the application is in a standard way today. So there's no way for Chef or Puppet or anything else that's out there that may be readying a platform for application delivery to really act on on information that doesn't exist in a standard place. So I think it's more of a conceptual abstract to, to sort of put the information in, in a single place so that those automation environments and bots that ready things for application, um, you know, runtime uh, are able to act on that information in a standard way. So I, I think it's a cool concept. I, there wasn't a lot of detail in the article that was out there uh, that yeah. really told us how it works. And they said that it was completing with, you know, Cloud Foundry's Bosch to a certain extent, which I don't know anything about either. So I guess it sounds cool. I would be excited to see how it really comes into play. But, um, you know, I think it's just another sign like like Amazon's, you know, application profiling service that people need a better way to move application workloads around. And this may be a great tool that we have at our disposal at some point in the future. Yeah, that's not, that sounds about like what I read. Derek, what do you think? Does this uh, Does this sound like something useful to you? Uh, potentially, right. You know, I think it's going to depend on how it really works. And I think it's really more to kind of help enable a, you know, more of a DevOps model uh, where teams can kind of rapidly move applications around, you know, whether it's kind of on-prem, off-prem, um, you know, kind of get rid of um, specifics on, you know, the hypervisors and whatnot. So, um, yeah, it'd be kind of interesting to see how it all plays out. Juan, anything to say? Yeah, I mean, from what I gathered, uh, it's really, you know, providing a way to, automate or kind of automate the, the software build process, right? For, you know, your various applications, yes. right? So with with data centers becoming more and more diverse, you know, there's no real standardization for a lot of businesses. This might make a lot of sense for them to make, you know, the automation, the deployment a lot easier and be less dependent on, you know, native tools or or being tied to any one type of hardware. 
this might make it easier for them. Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely interested to learn more about it. I'm I'm looking. I thought there was some kind of scheduled webinar for like a week out. If I find it, I'll stick it in the show notes. It might be worth attending and and seeing what this is all about. But uh, it might also be like uh, like what you said, Juan. It might also be some kind of vaporware. We'll see how it turns out. All right, so our topic today is uh, just sort of a review of uh, Windows Server 2016. Juan is here as our subject matter expert. And um, so, Juan, let's uh, let's talk about 2016, uh, which, you know, is half over already. So <laughs> what's, what's going on? Usually, you know, Microsoft releases these things kind of like uh, a year model car, right? You know, the, 2016 is released in 2015 and and so on. So what? How come it's so late? So there's there's a lot going on in in 2016. Uh, Server 2016 versus you know the traditional you know next version of release right where they add in some new features and call it a day. Um, no, the, the, from everything we've seen, anything you can find on the internet today, this is really um, with a lot of the technology that's coming from Azure. Um, they, they got to translate that secret sauce into something that a business can can deploy turnkey, right? Uh, you know, a lot of businesses are looking to deploy their um, their data center infrastructure with something that's not going to require a lot of development or a lot of work to try to make it work for them, right? So, making a lot of that technology that's in Azure today uh, translate to something that a, a you know an everyday customer can use without a whole lot of customization is going to take some time. Not to mention all the features they've been throwing in there. So I, I think that's what's taking so long. Um, yeah, I, you're right. You know, usually it comes out you know probably Q uh, Q3 of the year before of the of uh, what the the release is. But I mean, it'll be good. It'll be worth the wait. All right. So let's let's talk about some of the stuff that you guys are adding in. It looks like you guys are, uh, in 2016, you guys are going to start doing some containerization, sort of like uh, Docker and some of their competitors are doing. How, uh, how's that going to work? Um, I haven't read up too much on that piece of it, but uh, you had mentioned it just before the show. How, uh, how are you guys going to do containers? How will they be usable by you know our, the regular sysadmins who are used to running a Microsoft product? Well, you really had to start with the one I'm most uncomfortable with, huh? Um, well, you suggested yeah, well, <laughs> you the one who wanted to put it in here. Um, well, so here's what I understand from it. So you know, we're 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 not saying don't use Docker. Um, we're really integrating with it. Uh, my understanding, and you know, from a container perspective, we're not really kind of going outside the box on that one. It's it's a container just like any other container. What we're taking a little bit differently is we're we're throwing in Hyper V containers. Where we're going to allow, um, you know, administrators to use Hyper-V the way they're used to, but in a more containerized format. So now, um, you know, companies have to worry about compliance, where they have to worry about whether data is being or applications being intermingled with other applications that's on the same hardware. Now you can have that level of separation uh, through Hyper-V. The, the kind of the benefits you get through virtualization, you can now leverage that in Hyper-V uh, with containers. So. You're still getting the, you know, you're still removing that 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 uh, shell layer. You're still going to, you still have direct access to the hardware, um, but you're not, or to the kernel, I should say. But you're not, uh, you're not technically commingling data if you're so, shop that. So will it kind that. of be like, will it kind of be like running roles or applications in a sandbox, but on the actual Hyper-V operating system? 
Is that sort of the idea behind the containerization in Hyper-V? Yeah, but not in the traditional sense where you know you're running a virtual machine that's basically emulating hardware, right? You actually, in this case, you have direct access to the hardware, kind of really removing right. the operating system from the layer. Yeah, so you don't have a second operating system. You really just have your application running in its own kind of sandbox that's using the same, you know, using the file system of the Hyper-V server and and that sort of thing, similar to, you know, I guess how the, you know the rest of the container technologies work. But you're actually able to run you know, Windows-based applications instead of, until now, only Linux-based applications in, in environments like that. Yep. yep. So that sounds awesome. Do you know if, so this is just a question that I have, are you going to be able to to uh, install roles as their own containers? I know in the past it's, you know, it's always been frowned upon to put, like, multiple uh, multiple roles on the same server, especially in a larger enterprise environment, right? You don't want to have, like, your domain controller running on the same server as, you know, your maybe DHCP server or, or definitely your SQL server or something like that. So are those kind of roles or those kinds of applications able to be put into containers and put on the same host now? Um, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know if you're going to be able to take like your traditional DC or exchange server and, you know, containerize and run it that way, but your applications, you know, your, your traditional, you know, your worker roles, your, your web apps, stuff like that, that, that lends itself well to containerization. Yeah. You're definitely going to want to run as many as you can on a box. Um, you know, if it's supported, if it's going to, you know, be able to take advantage of the hardware, but as for the traditional application, traditional roles, I don't know. We'll see. Okay. I'm interested to see that. Um, I saw another a new feature in here. It looks like you'll be able to uh, to bolt non active uh, non active directory identity systems like just a basic like Open LDAP or some other maybe cloud maybe possibly like cloud based uh, uh, identity management system into Active Directory and and actually process uh, transactions against it as if it were Active Directory. Um, what? Uh, What's this feature about? How is it going to work? Yeah, so that's a pretty cool feature that I've uh, reading up on this week. The, you know, one of the biggest issues, you know, think, uh, think acquisitions, right? Whenever we, you know, you, you're uh, an organization that has to acquire another business, you know, one of the first things you have to worry about is, okay, how are we going to get these two, uh, in, um, identities to integrate, right? Whether we're going to have to migrate them into our AD, whether we're going to have to go to theirs, um, what are they running? Are they using Novell, who knows? Um, where we're adding, <laughs> <Novell>. <laughs> I had to throw that in there. Um, yeah. Where we're taking it a step further now with identity services is we're now letting you stay, whether if you're on LDAP v3, um, we're letting you stay there um, and leverage Active Directory uh, domain services uh, as part of these features. So now you can stay in your directory. Um, Let's say you're an Office 365 customer. All you need to have are those objects uh, replicated into Office 365, and now you can leverage those um, uh, your credentials that you would in your or your source your original directory without having to you know migrate into your your um, AD directory. So uh, nice little feature is going to make uh, some customers' lives a lot easier. Um, probably going to put some uh, third party yeah. utilities out of business, but um, no, it's it's an awesome feature and it's going to definitely make integration a lot easier for a lot of businesses. Yeah, it sounds like it would be. Uh you know, mergers, it, it, that, that's what kind of comes to mind is what you mentioned is, is things like mergers where you have two companies, one possibly using Active Directory and one not, and, you know, being able to sort of bolt those together and, you know, quickly have a single identity management system all based in Active Directory. Yeah, I've had to do a um, few of those. They're not fun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so for me, I'm a little bit confused by this. Like, I, I mean, I get that it, like the short term strategy and like it, it's a, you know, get things up and running really quickly, but it seems almost like I'm, per, or I'm 
inventing a way to support more systems ongoingly, right? Like, so I make this thing work like it's one experience, but it's really not one experience. So it like kind of is keeping like, oh, whatever this old identity management system is and Active Directory, I've got to support both of them now. My help desk is confused about who lives where and where I need to make authoritative changes to things. And then when that when I get tickets, I've got a lot more to deal with than I would have if I would have just dealt with the pain of moving people over like we have to today. So I don't know, it just kind of seems odd to me. Yeah, it sounds like it's, it sounds kind of like a stopgap feature um, for for you know users. I, I don't know, Juan, jump in if if you think I'm incorrect here, but it sounds kind of like a stopgap, Mike. And you're, but I think what you're saying is you can. It, it's sort of. Um, it's a solution that you could leave in place forever and just adds complexity rather than forcing you to go through and do it correctly. Yeah. I mean, let's be honest. IT people are lazy, right? So I got this thing working. <laughs> we went through all this pain to get it up and running and now I'm just going to leave it alone because if it's not broke, don't fix it. Right. <laughs> yeah. I think everyone's going to find their use case, right? Whether it's going to make sense to leave it separate or it's going to make sense to consolidate. I think at the end of the day, everyone has their, their reasons, but yeah, We've we've seen it, right? We we've seen it where stuff just gets left there and it just becomes a management nightmare. So we'll see how people leverage that. So one is there, you know, kind of being less cynical. Is there some use case for it where I'm trying to integrate with another organization that I haven't acquired and we need to remain autonomous, or there's no real future integration that's planned? I mean, would it provide a a functional use case there that uh, that we could actually sort of you know just use to interoperate better or collaborate better? Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially when you layer on top ADFS, um, it, it's going to make you know collaboration or integrations with other businesses a lot easier. I mean, a, that ADFS functionality has been there. Uh, now, you know, with with the the integrations with other LDAP directories, all you have to really worry about is just toss in that that uh, that directory name into your ADFS environment, and you're good to go. Nice. Um, kind of clean up some of the complexity, I guess. Very cool. Real quick side note one, the GUI is an installable feature. Is that part of Nano Server or no, is that a separate? So actually that was been around since 2012. So in 2012 we introduced uh, – All right. I'm going to well, scratch that then. Well, core, right? Uh, core has been I remember Server Core, yeah. um, but I thought that once you installed Server Core, you couldn't install a GUI after the fact. Or is that incorrect? You know, I don't think you are correct. I, yeah, I don't. I think that's that's correct. Yeah, but now, um, so and you could always, you know, take the 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 GUI out in uh, in the full experience version. And now in, in 2016, sorry, we're taking that a bit further. So yeah, you can you could put the GUI in if you want, do what you need to do, and then take it out when you're done. Uh, right. At least that's my understanding of it. Um, All right. But if you really think about what what we're really trying to accomplish around um, administration is. Uh, do you really need a GUI on the server? What do you need a GUI for that you can't do from the RSAT tools or from PowerShell yeah. remotely? Taking the whole Linux play finally, right, with like Ubuntu's back in the day, it's like, well, mostly CLI, not usually GUI, but, you know, it's there if you want to install it. Yeah, or most, most of the roles on a Windows server, you know, the you actually install the administrative tools as like a separate feature. And so you can stick those on some management server that's remote you know, and have a non-GUI server running and just manage those from your actual GUI-based tool just remotely on some different, you know, GUI-based, GUI-based platform. Yeah, we actually have something coming out in 2016 that I, I the, the, the name escapes me, but it's basically a role 
that you can deploy on a server, on a box, or on a virtual machine that basically acts as your admin server, or that it can it can hook into all your all your Windows boxes or your 2016 boxes. I think it goes down to 2012 as well, uh, and you can run. Is it uh, just enough administration? Well, that's the the methodology behind it, right? You know, only get, grant enough access that you need, right? You don't, you know, con, kind of gone are the days of the domain admins that have free reign to do whatever they want. Now it's really you know timed access. How much access do you really need and stuff like that? Very cool. So I got to say, right, before we move on, that the, the statement that Juan just made about, like, where we're going with the platform, there's nothing you really can't do in RSAT or in PowerShell. I sort of had, like, this nostalgic feeling for a second of, like, being back in the early 2000s, like, circa NT4, Windows 2000 days, and, like, hearing that same argument from, like, a crusty Unix administrator that used to sit in the back corner of my data center <laughs> telling me there was no reason why I needed a GUI, and that everything could be done with Bash and with uh, with Python. <laughs> so, it just, thank you for taking me back. There you go. <laughs> Anything I can do to help. We're going backwards, man, because now if you look at all the SDN stuff, it's the other way around. No more CLI and all GUIs everywhere else. Right. It's funny how that works out, right? It's all yeah. PowerShell now, man. It's all PowerShell. Cis- Cisco, Microsoft are swapping places there on that one. <laughs> yep, I agree. We'll just wait till we get to the SDN stuff. Yeah. yeah exactly. So uh, next feature up here to talk about is storage replicas. From what I could tell, it looked like it was some kind of native block-level uh, block replication of, um, of volumes between servers. One... It, um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. Is is that is that sort of what the feature is, and and what is the use case for it? So this is really taking what we did in 2012 uh, with storage spaces, um, taking that to the next level. So if you're familiar with storage spaces at all, or if you're not, I should say, um, it's you know providing RAID-like capabilities for 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 your disks uh, on on your on your servers. So you know providing fault tolerance, striping, um, storage tiers. You know, it was really kind of like your, you know, your software-defined uh, software raid. Yeah, it's your software yep. raid. Yeah, really. Yep. So now, and you know, we're we're building on top of that. So now we're introducing um, kind of uh, stretch clusters or geo clusters, if you if you refer to it that way, where you're able to over a certain amount of distance, uh, you know, replicate your clusters um, in a Hyper-V environment. So storage replica is going to make that a lot easier from a DR perspective. So now uh, we're talking about replicating your your Hyper-V information, or really any uh, information at the at the block level through storage replica. So the use case, it's really a DR play. Um, it's, you know, replicating your entire data center, your primary data center over to your secondary data center and being able to fail over that way um, okay. in a Hyper-V environment. So is this, like, similar to, like, VMware's replication functionality that, uh, you know, it's it sort of works with SRM to journal block changes and then it can bring the virtual machines back up on the other side? Or is this more for, like, file system data that may be sitting on a, on a server? Like, you you mentioned blocks specifically, but I'm, I'm just trying to think of the use case. Like, would it be to bring VMs back up in a different geographic location from on Hyper-V that wasn't there before? So, no, the, the Hyper-V replica has been there since uh, 2012, so that's kind of more of your, your VMware replica, right? You're, you're replicating your VM, your VM disks across to a foreign node. Um, this is going to take it a step further and go down to the storage level. Um, and it's really, you know, meant to commoditize storage a little bit more, kind of be a little bit less dependent on, you know, a, a storage controller in the traditional sense and, you know, kind of just leveraging what you got um, and replicating natively within the within the OS. Hmm. Okay. So the next feature up here, this one, uh, this one looked kind of interesting. 
um, a feature you guys call Soft Restart, where it looks like it's it's an actual reboot of the operating system without a without an actual reset of the BIOS and hardware underneath. Um, one, how do how <laughs> this this like Mike described something earlier? This sounds kind of like magic. How does this work? <laughs> yeah. Um, you got me. No, this one, this one's cool. Yeah. So you, you kind of said it right. It's your, it's your reset of the shell and your services without the post, right? So you're not, you're not resetting the hardware, which we yeah. all love. You know, depending on how big your server is, it could take a while for your server to come back. Yeah. Um. Yeah. You're basically not doing a a post reboot. How it works, I don't know, but it's it's pretty cool. Is it in the Is it in the current preview? release of 2016 do you know it is it's a it's a feature um last i read the feature is native um but i'm seeing some, some i haven't played with the latest build um but uh from what i understand it's a it's a checkable feature but other people saying that it's installed natively and the commands are are in the uh in, in the cli already so cool do, i gotta give it a try yeah if you do a shutdown slash question mark i think it'll you'll see you'll see soft in there all right cool so uh, the next one up here, I think this is this this one as a networking guy. This one struck me kind of interesting. It was from what I read about it, it was a little bit vague. But there's a feature called, or or possibly a role called network controller. Um, that from its description was for, you know, sort of the uh, the automation of networking components like um, switches, routers, possibly load balancers, things like that. What uh, what is I mean what what are you actually going to be able to do with this one what what is this feature you guys see it being used for? So if I had to guess, this is taking what we've learned in Azure and throwing it into a Windows box. Um, so you you kind of already mentioned that I know I know all three of you guys' faces is probably going to light up or run away in in fear, but yeah, it's really taking the automation of the the east west north south traffic uh, and the associated hardware right. So uh, provisioning firewall ports for your VMs, provisioning load balancers, assigning um, new VLANs within um, hyper or yeah, with hyper V uh, virtual networks, um, really taking automation of the network components as it relates to windows server and hyper V and throwing it in, into a role within windows. Hmm. So, um, you know, all rest API based, really similar to kind of what we're doing in Azure. Um, that's just my opinion of what what I think. Whether it actually is the secret sauce, I don't know. But um, pretty pretty neat stuff if you start to think about what you're going to be able to do just natively with an Hyper-V. So are those things that are like uh, network function virtualization, like the software is actually providing the firewall functionality or the routing functionality, or is that really hooks into you know partnered third party hardware or software that? may already exist in your data center and you can kind of, you know, to be cliche, use it from a single pane of glass uh, from within the Windows operating system. So if you look at it from what I've seen, it looks like it's going to be a mix of some of the so- some software uh, and some hardware. So, you know, taking control of your top of uh, top of line rack switches, uh, taking control of your of your routers. Uh, or I should say managing your routers um, from a firewall and load balancing perspective, I would imagine a lot of that is software. And I'm sure in the future, I mean, if you look at what VMware did, they did a lot of integration with third party, right? A lot of it with Cisco, Palo Alto, they did a lot of stuff with Trend Micro. So I imagine there will be third party integrations in the future. Cool. So let's uh, let's talk about Hyper-V. Some of the features you guys are releasing around, uh, around that uh, use case of Windows Server. 
Um, I know Nano Server was announced a while back, and that that sounded uh, that that was one of the features that struck me as probably the most interesting. I think from a you know from being a systems guy for a while, one of the things I really liked about uh, the VMware you know ESX product over Microsoft for a while was its tiny footprint. You know, it has like a 300 megabyte footprint. Um, when installed onto a server and a Hyper-V, you know, just sort of always carried all the weight of the entire, you know, Microsoft, all of the roles and, and features that, you know, are, are sitting there, uh, on the file system ready to be installed, even if you're not using them. But it looks like nano server is sort of, you know, the Microsoft version of ESX one is, uh, is that a good, is that a, you know, an accurate statement there? Yeah, that's, that's a fair, uh, fair statement. Yeah. I, I'm with you. You know, I, I did a lot of VMware in my time. Uh, and, yeah, it was a big difference between deploying a Windows box for a Hyper-V role and a, an ESX server. Um, yeah, Nano Server is what I think last time I read it was like 512 meg. Nice. Um, 256 uh, megs of RAM utilization uh, out of the box. So, yeah, it's, it's you know, your headless operating system. It's a very small instance with the same density as a full a fully fledged Windows Server 2016 box. It's got all the capabilities. It's got all the. Uh, it can take full advantage of your hardware, whatever you throw at it, um, but in a very small, compact form. Very cool. Very cool. Um, next up is uh, shielded VMs. This looked like some kind of um, sort of um, an access control feature for virtual machines, especially if you're running as like some kind of public or shared cloud. What is that all about, Juan? This is actually a really cool feature, and it really ties into the just enough administration kind of methodology that 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 we're we're taking on. Um, you know, kind of paint you a picture here. You know, think about the the uh, the angry server admin. Uh, what's to stop him from taking? It's all of them. Yeah. <laughs> Um, what's to stop them from taking a USB stick, walking into the data center, copying your VMDKs, copying your VHDs, and going home, loading them up on his you know, personal box and getting whatever information he needs, right? He or she needs. Um, shielded VMs is really going to protect the enterprise from data loss, where now you can um, make it so your VMs are only going to run on that fabric. So uh, you're not going to be able to take that VHD popping it into another box that's maybe even sitting right next to it, but in a different fabric, it will not run. It will not load. You will not be able to read that disk. So it's, it's a really awesome way of protecting the, the, the enterprise from data loss. Um, I, I don't think anybody else is doing that. I haven't seen anybody else do that. I uh, haven't seen a cool it. Feature. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds really cool actually. But, uh, what, what's the, um, you know, what's, what's the downside to that? Is there like, how do I, how do I protect my VM, right? If it's only allowed to run on that fabric that exists in one data center and I've got a disaster there, what, how do I, am I still able to replicate that VM and protect it in the same way? Or is it really like, that's a point in time instance. And if it blows up, it blows up and I need to have some other data protection method for the, you know, the, the IP or the data that lives inside of that machine. Yeah. I imagine there'll be, you know, replication availability there's going to be recoverability features built in uh, i imagine there's going to be storage keys or some sort of encryption key associated with it that's going to allow you to recover that disk um i haven't seen that yet but i imagine it's going to be built in okay all right very cool shielded vms definitely something to put down yeah i watched a little video on it it looked like uh looked like you guys are using bitlocker on the back end to encrypt the actual like vmdk's 
uh, that the VMs are stored on. And then there's also, you know, security for the actual console of the server that's running. So you can't just hop into the Hyper-V manager, open up the console and, you know, look at whatever you want. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I mean, yeah. it just if you think about it from a security perspective, but you, you think about it. We walk in and out of data centers all day long. Yeah. Um, all it takes is a bad day, you know, or you're in a bad mood, and you can you can do some damage. Yes. Um, this is going to protect business. Yeah, yeah, and it sounds like a good. Uh, uh, I'm assuming this is going to be implemented or is already implemented in Azure, right? I think that's one of the, uh, um, at least from what I saw. Is that right, Juan? Is this uh, is this something that's going to be deployed also in Azure as a sort of a feature to secure your data so that even you know admins who have physical access to the devices don't have access to your actual data? Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, even if you were able to get access to one of Azure data centers and you were by some reason you're able to grab a hard drive, it's not going to do you any good because you don't have any of those encryption keys to open up that that hard drive. So yeah. it's the similar concept that's going to be applied down at the uh, server level. So as long as the angry admin who we're trying to protect against implements this feature on our VMs, we're going to be in great shape. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like it. Uh, protects us from himself. Um, okay, so next here is uh, um, a feature that it sounds like it's both a feature in Hyper-V and, and also in the actual kernel of, of the Windows operating system itself because I'm assuming um, the – the server 2016 operating system is going to have to support this is a hot change in memory and, and network adapters for VMs. So you don't have to actually shut down your VMs to, you know, bump up or down. Well, or at least up, you know, the size of the memory and, uh, and hot add and remove the network adapters on there. Um, is that, uh, is, is that pretty much what it is one? Yeah, that, that, you know, that's a feature that's been missing. I mean, we've had, uh, dynamic memory right where you can kind of uh expand your memory as needed based on you know kind of a preset uh number but now we're basically saying you can throw hardware in or you can take it out yeah um, all the operating systems running that's yeah. pretty cool yep so this last one was i think probably my favorite that i read about assuming i understood it completely um is this storage resiliency where um you know your host can detect um an outage to the actual block level storage that your VMs are stored on, and then pause all of your VMs so they don't sit there and you know have uh, have storage errors on their on uh, on their internal systems and, and end up crashing. You can actually pause them, wait to you know work to bring the storage back up, and uh, um, and then unpause the VM and let it keep on going on its way. Uh, is that sort of the use case for this one? So there's a few use cases. Um, you know, one of the one of the examples I've seen that makes a lot of sense is you know we've seen we've all seen a, a switch or a server or a server neck I should say is acting funky and it'll start to flap. Um, traditionally in Windows uh, clustering, if you have any sort of flapping within the network, the cluster tends to freak out. John, I'm sure you've seen it with yeah. uh, with some of the Windows clustering. It, 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 it freaks out a little bit. So now uh, what it's doing is uh, if it starts to see this, rather than you know initiate a full failover or a full freakout for that matter, uh, it's going to isolate that host. So if you have a Hyper-V cluster and one of the hosts is acting up, rather than failing everything over or uh, fail or causing the cluster to do some sort of uh, um, uh, protection, it's going to isolate that server until it either um, it calms down, it stops you know, doing whatever it's doing from a, you know, a flapping perspective, or you know, if it's continuing to do that, it's going to alert your admin and the admin can go in and 
look at the box and say, hey, what's going on here? Um, yeah, and so from a VM perspective, it's going to give you a little bit more protection on your VMs. So, you know, making a lot of improvements for the way uh, server clustering is going to handle, um, you know, outages. So yeah. is that a little bit different than what John just described? Because the first thing that John was describing sounds, again, like magic. Because <laughs> without some sort of, like, write-through cache or some sort of local place to suspend the memory, um, when you pause that VM to uh, on that local host, if it's a shared storage environment that went down, I don't see how that could possibly work. But it would be fantastic if that could work. Um, I just want to make sure I'm clear on whether they've actually conjured magic again or if it's uh, <laughs> just we just misunderstood the feature to begin with. Yeah, it it could very well much be magic. Um, yeah, <laughs> yes. no, the. So my yeah, understanding was it, it was it was essentially the I mean I think Juan's the, the point that Juan made was it was um, it was for like some kind of intermittent storage issue to avoid the actual move of VMs. But from what I from from what I saw, it seemed like it was you know I, I've seen environments where you'll you know if you're using something like an iSCSI environment and on your iSCSI switches you have something like a spanning tree uh, topology change, right? You have a thirty second outage of storage for all of your VMs and for your hosts. Um, you're, a lot of time, almost all operating systems um, will just completely freak out if they can't access storage and, uh, and, and actually validate the writes that they've made for 30 seconds, right? But if you, and that's, and that's something that's happening on the operating system of the virtual machine itself. But if you're able to pause that VM and stop its actual, um, its actual operations on, the, on its virtual CPUs, then you can you can sort of nip that in the bud and keep that VM just suspended there until you can bring your storage back up and and avoid any kind of data loss that might be sitting in memory on those VMs when they're about to crash. Yeah, and yeah. that's really that's really going to de- depend on what kind of your storage backend looks like. Uh, in this case, you're you know you're assuming you're in a you know a, a block storage backed environment. Right. So yeah, it would put it in a pause but critical state. So yeah, um, it's not going to be happy, but it, it's better than having a complete crash in the traditional sense. Yeah, it'd be kind of awesome. My, um, I don't know how hot it was for you guys today, but uh, it got like really hot here at w- where I live, and. Uh, and my storage server in my lab just completely crapped out and just crashed and all of my you know all of my my hosts and vms just freaked out i had to shut everything you know just pretty much kill the power on everything and i have no idea if it's all going to come back up okay but you don't got you should, put it, you should put that on uh, azure <laughs> you, you don't have uh, you don't have enterprise grade coolers in your garage <laughs> no no i have a 110 degree garage with uh, a whole bunch of discs and you know my server <laughs> sitting there and <laughs> i got to come up with a better solution but uh this could have at least kept you know kept my vms from going completely haywire but yeah it sounds like an awesome it sounds like an awesome feature yep a lot of cool stuff coming out yeah Definitely. i'm excited um do uh, do you know the the current anticipated release date right now for uh, for server 2016? I don't, but I will say that I'm pretty sure it's this year. <laughs> From what I could we, tell, uh, we should have got a guy that worked at Microsoft. To come <laughs> <on the> podcast. <laughs> what the hell? It's it that salesman Q- answer. I love it. From, from what I could tell, it looked like it was Q3 of this year. That I, yeah, um, no, that, that's the that's the the estimate. If you look at kind of uh, what server 2016 and in, in System Center, um, they're kind of targeting around the same Q3 timeframe. Okay. Our Q1. Any other cool features, Juan, that you like about 2016? You want to talk about? 
Oh, God, there's so many. Um, no, actually, no, we hit on a lot of the cool ones. The other ones are obviously going to be, you know, your improvements to the hardware, kind of, you know, the ones that people really start uh, chomping at the bit for, like, how much memory can it run? How much? Yeah. How many CPUs can it run? I mean, that stuff, that's a given. That's coming. Uh, but no, these are really the, the, the cool features that are coming out. Um, right. I'll send you guys a link. There's a, uh, I think it's like a 50-minute long video of kind of uh, top top 10 things of Server 2016. Some They have some demos in there. It's pretty cool stuff. Just check it out. Very cool. I'll put the link in the show notes. I, t- okay. I totally forgot to bring up uh, Azure Stack. Have you looked into Azure Stack? No, what is it? Yeah, that looks really cool, dude. I, I've actually been looking at it. Like, I think there's some like huge benefits from that. It's John, if you haven't if you haven't seen it, well, it's basically well, Azure me, in a box. Tell me what it is, and I'll stick it in the show. It's basically Azure in a box. It's you know running your own Azure like environment in your own data center, and so it's, it's really pri- so it's private cloud, Azure private cloud. Yeah, Azure private cl- or yeah, Windows Server private cloud automation. So if you really think about the customers that are either uh, they're not in a region that they have a strong connection to Azure, which that number is shrinking uh, almost daily. Um, or you know they're heavily regulated; they just can't get into the public cloud yet. This is really the answer for them to take advantage of all the features of Azure, uh, but within your own data center. Cool guys. Well, let's go around the table and uh, let's go around the table and just talk about what you guys are doing this week and uh, where people can find you on the internet, Derek. Where are you, uh, you know, how can people find you socially online and what do you have going on the rest or uh, this upcoming week? Sure. So for this week, uh, got a couple designs. I owe some customers and some probably boring admin type stuff. So we'll see how the week plays out. Uh, social media wise, uh, usually LinkedIn and Pack of Pushers and then occasionally on uh, on the Twitter. Juan, how about yourself? Are you uh, are you social at all on the Internet? And uh, what, have, what do you have going on this week? So, yeah, you can find me on TechNet. Uh, my name is JCRUZ-MS, or you can find me on LinkedIn. And uh, this week, uh, we're in WPC mode, so we're actually going to be preparing to go out to WPC, which is out in uh, Toronto this year in July. Uh, and I'll be reaching out to my partners and making sure they have what they need to be uh, prepared for the, the conference. Very cool. Mike, how about yourself? Nothing really notable to talk about this week. Just working on some uh, systems integration as we start to move more toward our parent company here. Um, but uh, you can always find me, or maybe not. I've been notably absent from social media on Twitter uh, at my last name, which is A-O-S-S-E-Y. Uh, so look me up for some rants and uh, generally, you know, probably inappropriate comments about stuff. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I will be this week working on some... Uh some Palo Alto stuff and uh, some designs for a few customers. If you guys want to find me online, I'm on Twitter at Packetzar, and you can find my blog at Packetzar.com. Thanks, guys, for your time very much. Juan, thank you for uh, thank you for coming on here to talk about 2016. Anytime, guys. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Juan. Have a good Thanks, one, guys. guys. Are you guys? Yeah. Are you guys all uh, Game of Thrones people? Oh, dude, I'm I'm, ready I'm the to go only ahead. guy in the world that's never seen a single episode ever. Really? No, I, I have I have no reason to like. No, I, you don't I like fantasy. Derek, I hate television, and I, I I cannot stop watching that show. I don't need I don't need more shows to watch. That's the problem. Just, like, I already just, have dude, enough. Just watch the first episode, and if you don't like it, I'll give I've you. I've seen South Park. I know what it's about. I'm good. I'll give you twenty bucks if you don't like it. <laughs> give me twenty bucks now, anyway. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I, uh, I I don't even have HBO. I go to my cousin's house to watch it, and uh, because we just like, watch it together. But I got it. Yeah, it's uh, it it it. You either love the show at, at the end, like on Monday morning. You either really love the show because it was a great episode, or you just hate it because another one of your favorite characters died. 